Happy Wednesday, Crimes Against Nature fans. This is your host, Julie Bryant. You know, I am working to make sure that I can get you a new story every Wednesday. It may not happen every Wednesday, but if you subscribe, you'll always get a notice letting you know that a new episode has been uploaded, and you can always catch up with us that way. Remember, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you might be listening. Today's episode is part two of The Death of Aladar. If you haven't already listened to part one, I recommend that you go back and take a listen so you'll be up to speed on where we are. But to summarize, Aladar, a thoroughbred stallion who ran second to affirmed in all three of the Triple Crown races in 1978, turned out to be a very popular thoroughbred sire. He was bringing millions into the coffers of Calumet Farm and outshone almost all of the stallions on the farm, including Affirmed. In November 1990, he was found by one of the grooms in his stall, standing still with a broken leg. Despite the heroic efforts of a team of veterinarians, Aladar could not be saved, falling after his surgery and fracturing the same leg again. Everyone involved in the incident, from his surgeons to the insurance adjuster, Tom Dixon, felt that it was just a horrible accident. And while the thoroughbred industry mourned his death, life went on. J.T. Lundy, however, the president and general manager of Calumet Farm, knew something no one else did. The farm was severely in debt, and with the insurance payout for Aladar, which according to different sources, whether it be Wild Ride, Texas Monthly, or a first-person account by Tom Dixon in Blood Horse, the insurance payoff was anywhere between $32 million and $36.5 million. So, was his death really an accident? Or was it, as one U.S. attorney believed, something intentional? The death of Aladar in 1990 was tragic, but not unique to that year. Go for Wand, who won the Eclipse Award as champion three-year-old filly, had to be euthanized just a month before during the October Breeders' Cup distaff when she suffered a fractured right cannon bone. Then, the great northern dancer, a leading sire in both the United States and the United Kingdom, died of colic just six days after Aladar's death at the age of 29. Sandwiched between those other two high-profile losses, the thoroughbred community paid their respects and moved on after Aladar was laid to rest, per J.T. Lundy's directive, under a huge headstone on Calumet Farm. It would be several months, almost two years, before what J.T. Lundy was hiding from the banks and members of the Wright family, who owned Calumet Farm, would begin to fuel rumors that Aladar's death might not have been an accident. J.T. Lundy was an enigma. He had married Cindy Wright, Lucille Markey's granddaughter and the daughter of Warren Jr. and Bertha Wright when she was only 16. Warren Jr. had died some years before, and while Bertha lived on Calumet, she had neither the experience nor the interest in running the farm. So after Lucille Markey died, the Wright family, heirs to the Calumet baking soda fortune, were content to let J.T. take over. According to the book Wild Ride, where you can learn more about the development of Calumet Farm by Warren Wright Sr., 
J.T. was not a social climber intended to keep to himself, but he loved the life of wealth and influence the association with Calumet brought him. While she was alive, Mrs. Barkey, the widow of Warren Wright Sr., did not approve of his marriage to Cindy and wanted little to do with J.T. So after her death, he reveled in the idea of being able to run Calumet the way he wanted to. He did not live on the farm, preferring to live on his own thoroughbred operation in neighboring Scott County, and drove to his opulent offices at Calumet every day, offices that he had cleaned out of both the furnishings and the people who worked there for years, preferring to decorate and run it himself without any interference or opinion from anyone else. David Schweitzer former executive director of the Kentucky Thoroughbred Association and a member of the team that worked to save Calumet Farm, remembered how affectionate Lucille Markey was toward Aladar and how the team that ran Calumet Farm was one of the best in the country until J.T. Lundy took over. I think that Mrs. Wright uh, or Mrs. Markey um, really enjoyed that era with Aladar. She was elderly and frail and yet she, they got her to Keeneland to watch Alidar in the Bluegrass Stakes. And she, they brought the horse over to her at the rail, and she got to pet his nose. And it was kind of an emotional situation, that, and the fans loved it when they saw that. Schweitzer noted that once J.T. Lundy took over, it seemed that he wanted nothing to do with what Warren Wright had created and what Lucille Markey had sustained. He got rid of all of the staff and began to make changes to the farm that would let people know that he was going to make Calumet great once again. There's an old adage that I've heard for years is that the first generation develops the business. The second generation builds on what the first generation started. The third generation goes to the country club and drinks martinis, and the business goes to hell in the handbasket. The financial web that J.T. Lundy wove, which is very detailed in Wild Ride, is incredibly complicated, and I won't go into it here. But much of it came from offering Aladar services, either through lifetime breedings, which he sold for $2.5 million per investor, and then continued to sell annual breedings for at least $250,000. Aladar was covering more than 100 mares a year in a time when most stallions were covering between 50 and 80. Dr. Larry Bramlage, a highly regarded orthopedic surgeon from Reed and Riddle Equine Hospital in Lexington, and the veterinarian who performed the surgery on Aladar's initial fracture, remembers. He was so popular, uh, and he was the meal ticket for such a long time. He was the horse everybody wanted. And then whenever the their book's full, well, if they're calling you, it's easier to sell them another stallion while they're there. So... He generated churn for the mares he was breeding, but also the the additional mares that would call Calumet couldn't get in and then would decide to use one of the other stallions. Both Schweitzer and Bramlage agree that the trouble J.T. Lundy got himself into was not all by his own hand. There were plenty of bloodstock agents and others who wanted to be a part of the big deals that he was making, and those decisions were bad decisions too. I think that Alley Dog was probably bred to more mares than a firm was. Um, many of the seasons that were sold to Alley Dog 
was not necessarily directly through JT, but through a couple of bloodstock agents that had befriended JT. Uh, and, and they were selling seasons and making deals and whatever uh, to just try and make money if they could. Because there were so many uh, deals that were, were made, uh, some by a handshake, uh, some uh, pay me whenever you can, which didn't help their bottom line very much. I remember a gentleman coming into the farm office one day and asking for the stallion service certificates for three or four mares that uh, he had bred to Ali Dar and had the offspring, and we had no record that they'd been paid for. And so we weren't going to release the stallion service certificates unless they, they were paid. And he said, oh, well, JT and I just had this deal. And so that's typical, actually, of, of things that went on with the business side of trying to deal with Alidar. Dr. Larry Bramlich agreed. I don't really think JT set out to be a crook. I I think he just wasn't, he was in over his head. He got in, he, he got put in a situation that he wasn't capable of managing well. And everybody was taking advantage of him and he was living the big life. I just think he was overmatched. You know, I just think JT was trying to manage an organization that he wasn't, first of all, experienced enough to manage and maybe not capable of handling the whole situation. Regardless of his intentions, JT Lundy still had the purse strings and was responsible for the bottom line. Lundy began borrowing millions of dollars from Kentucky banks, but the one that got him into real trouble and got the attention of the U.S. attorney was a $50 million loan to First City Bank Corporation in Houston, Texas. The loan was approved by a vice chairman by the name of Frank Syak, who incidentally had shares in Secreto, one of Lundy's stallions. According to an outstanding article by Skip Hollinsworth in the June Texas Monthly, Syak resigned in October 1990. By October the 25th, 1990, a bank officer with First City contacted Lundy and told him that he would need to come up with $15 million by February 1991, or the bank would seize the farm and all of its assets. Three weeks later, Aladar was dead. I'm pausing just a moment to tell you about another self-supported business, my good friend Bob Tallman, the owner of Bobby T's Jerky. Bob is a Texas rancher and he's proud of his Texas beef. And with Bobby T's Jerky, you get some of the most tender jerky around. My personal favorite is Valle Sagrado. So visit bobbyteesjerky.com and enter code NATURE to receive 20% off. That's bobbyteesjerky.com, enter code NATURE. Now back to our story. In March 1991, according to Wild Ride, Lundy was called to a meeting with bankers, his mother-in-law, Bertha Wright, and others who helped him run the farm when things came to a head. The banks were basically calling the loans, which by this time totaled allegedly more than $120 million. The banks were tired of Lundy's promises to sell yearlings and broodmares, and they knew the thoroughbred market was sliding. Lundy, proud to the end, said that if the family wanted him to leave, he would, 
and slid a resignation letter across the table and walked out, never to return. Then, from another room in walked John T. Ward, Jr., the man that would head up the team Swicer served on to hopefully save Calumet. As the team began to examine records and receipts, it became apparent that J.T. Lundy had done a lot to try to improve the farm, adding an exercise pool, improving the fencing, but he also lived a pretty opulent lifestyle that Calumet could just not sustain. He could have been aspiring to be a good horse husbandry person, but evidently he was not a good business. And you have to be both. During the bankruptcy era, it was my opinion there was how awful someone could allow something like this to happen. In the Texas Monthly article, it was noted that journalist Carol Flake was the first to notice that Allardyce's earnings as a sire were not even close to what Lundy said they were. She discovered that Aladar was often performing on marriage for free, and that many times Lundy was giving his buddies free passes to use Aladar as their own personal stud. She also suggested that Aladar was no longer able to breed like he had been. Lundy couldn't get any more out of Aladar, who was already being bred so often that, according to one veterinarian, the muscles of his hind end were constantly sore. And to top that off, Flake also claimed that J.T. Lundy was behind on his equine mortality insurance payments for Aladar. If you choose to read Wild Ride or the 2001 Texas Monthly, you'll find that there are a lot of theories about what happened that November night in 1990. Alton Stone was not the regular night watchman. The regular night watchman was a man by the name of Cowboy Kip, who allegedly never missed work. There was also a strange story about a dark blue Ford Crown Victoria that stopped by one night when Cowboy Kip was at work. A large man got out and told him that the managers of the farm were concerned about him burning out and that he needed to take the day off. All of this came to light an astounding seven years after Aladar's death when U.S. Attorney Julia Tamala was investigating First City Bank Corporation. She found that Frank Syak had had shares in Secreto and was given breeding rights to Aladar for just a dollar. In Wild Ride and Texas Monthly, it's readily apparent that the U.S. Attorney tried everything she could to prove that Aladar had actually been killed for the insurance money. The more than $30 million paid for Aladar's insurance claim was used to pay the loan to First City Bank Corporation. But U.S. Attorney Tamala believed there was much more to the story than that. Tom Dixon, in his first-person account in the Blood Horse magazine, noted that as he was on the stand, he was approached by the U.S. attorney who had a yellow legal pad in her hand. She asked him if it was true that he had said the horse was killed for insurance money. He was stunned by the question. Turning to the judge, he told him that he never said the horse was killed for insurance money, and then the U.S. attorney returned to her seat and asked him no further questions. She managed to get Alton Stone, the groom, charged with perjury for the many stories he told about that night. But by 1999, it appeared that she might have given up on the Aladar death conspiracy until she persuaded a Houston federal grand jury to indict Lundy on charges of bank fraud, conspiracy, bribery, and lying about the $1.1 million bribe they had offered to Frank Syak, the former First City vice chairman. At this point, it's important to remember the piece of red metal that Tom Dixon saw when he first walked into the barn, where Aladar stood. He had been told that's where the horse had kicked his stall, and it would be that red piece of rusted metal that Tamala would hang her case on. Believing that Aladar would not have had the strength to break through the door and break the bracket, she was able to find an MIT professor named George Pratt, who testified that Aladar had to have been killed. 
He speculated, without ever seeing the bracket or the stall door, that someone had tied a rope around Aladar's leg and attached the other end of the rope to a truck that could have easily been pulled into the barn. Pratt even developed a mathematical formula that he said proved Aladar would not have had the strength or power to break the bracket and break his leg. This is an argument that Dr. Bramlage, who you may recall, did the surgery on Aladar, can easily disprove. For one, he saw the leg, which the MIT professor did not, and could easily discern what type of fracture it was. You couldn't break it by grabbing a hold of it. You couldn't break it by hooking it to a rope and, and pulling it through the stall door because it would end up in, with a with a high-energy fracture. You have to use his body weight in order to bend it at a, at a relatively slow, low-energy rate in order to make that fracture. During Dr. Bramlage's testimony at the Houston trial, Tamala even went so far as to suggest that the horse could have been injured by a crowbar, something that Dr. Bramlage thought was ridiculous. She was trying to make the point that someone could have held him and hit him with a crowbar uh, and broke his leg. That's ridiculous. First of all, if you're going to try to do something like that, you would not pick the right hind leg. He he was tough to handle to begin with. He's used to being handled from the left side because that's how where he went out to the paddock, like all horses are, used to being handled from the left side. So you go around to his right side unless you got somebody holding him. You're not going to get back there without with him being comfortable with you being back there. And if you're going to swing a crowbar hard enough to hit that leg and break it, you're not going to be able to do it unless you've got him sedated or restrained somehow because he's probably going to kick you before you can do it. He's, he, his personality was so bad. As Dr. Bramlage testified and as he explained for this podcast, the break could only have happened one way. After looking at his stall and understanding and, and looking at his fracture and understanding how he behaved, I think he was kicking at the stall wall for some at the stall door for some reason, like he does like he did all the time. And he happened to hit it and the bracket when I saw it later the pin that anchored it into the concrete was rusted. Like, um, you know, you stick a pin in concrete and leave it there 20 years, it's going to rust at the junction of the pin into the, the bolt, I should say, uh, into the concrete. And the, the bracket had bolts that had been anchoring it into the concrete, and they had partially rusted through. And I think he kicked the stall door and broke it. So now, when he kicks the stall door, he can push the stall door out. It's Mm -hmm. no longer held close against the wall. So the next time he kicks, his right leg went out through the space between the stall door and the stall wall. Because now the stall door is latched. So when there's no bracket, he can push the left-hand side of the door out away from the wall. And he's on, so he's on the inside the stall, kicking with both hind legs. His his right hind leg would line up with that junction of the stall door and the stall wall. And I think he kicked his foot out through there, and now he can't pull it back in. And he either uh, probably fell or lost his balance. And when the 
the he bent his leg the the he broke the cannon bone i think that's how he broke it because it's a low energy fracture now all of a sudden the leg is somewhat flexible and it'll come back in through the crack even with that very plausible and likely explanation there are still some questions what could have set aladar off that night if it's true that he got agitated if other horses were moving around and leaving him behind, was there someone in the barn? Why did Alton Stone change his story so many times that he was actually charged and convicted of perjury? And could J.T. Lundy have been so desperate to get the 30-some-odd million dollars from the insurance claim to pay off First City Bank that he would have had Aladar injured? Dr. Bramlinch thinks not. The only way they could have come out on him was if he would have kept breeding. Because uh, if all the money is already spoken for, there's no advantage to you in killing the horse. Still, it's a little hard to dismiss the reporting of journalist Carol Flake, who said that Aladar was no longer breeding the number of mares that he had, and that J.T. Lundy was behind on his equine mortality insurance payments. For the team that was working to save Calumet, going through the mess that J.T. Lundy had left behind and trying to collect on all the deals that J.T. Lundy had made, it just seemed that injuring Aladar to the point of euthanasia could have been a possibility. He dug a deep hole, <laughs> a really deep hole. Uh, you sometimes do drastic things, and uh, I would not put it past the fact that the horse did not get his leg in between that stall door and the wall by himself. In the end, the federal judge overseeing the trial stated in his final ruling that although there was evidence that Mr. Lundy had the motive and opportunity to injure Aladar, and there was some physical evidence, he was not able to conclude by the preponderance of the evidence that Mr. Lundy was responsible for the death of Aladar. The judge then sentenced Lundy to four years in prison for bribery. In the midst of all the suspicions, the trials, the hearings, Calumet Farm was sold in 1992 at auction for $17 million to Henrik de Kwiatkowski, who returned it to its former glory. J.T. Lundy was released from prison in 2005 and apparently still lives in the Georgetown area today. In 2012, the Calumet Investment Group bought the farm for over $36 million and then leased it to Brad Kelly. Kelly's horses race under the name of Calumet Farm, but they carry his colors, black and gold, as the original devil's red and blue silks of Calumet had been sold to a Brazilian investment group. The win of Oxbow in the 2013 Preakness Stakes marked the return of Calumet to the winner's circle of a Triple Crown race for the first time since 1968. Thank you for listening to this episode of Crimes Against Nature. You can find information about this episode at our website, crimesagainstnaturepodcast.com, where you will find all of our source material. If you're enjoying listening to Crimes Against Nature, I would appreciate it if you would leave us a five-star review. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or iHeartRadio and leave a review there. Your comments are also very helpful. 
Tips and comments are welcome at crimesagainstnaturepodcast.com. Crimes Against Nature is hosted and produced by me, Julie Bryant. Sound design is by Motion Array. All rights are reserved by Latigo Media, LLC. Once again, thanks for listening. Thank <laughs> you.